We're going to be talking today out of Matthew chapter 26 about a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Listen to the words of Jesus when he drops that phrase into what we'll be reading. From Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Everybody say very expensive. Which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. It's interesting how many times the disciples get it wrong. So it's one of the reasons why I really believe the Bible is true because if, if this was just like written by some people trying to make Christianity seem really good, they would leave out those parts. They would say, and the disciples cheered. Yay, yay God, yay, Jesus is getting a blessing of this very expensive perfume. But it says they were indignant. Why this waste, they ask. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Would you say those words, a beautiful thing? The poor you will always have with you. I mean, he's stating something obvious. There's always going to be need around us. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial, which was only about a week from this occasion. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, Here's something I want to call to your attention. If you have been reading uh, our 260 reading plan, which, which we've invited our whole church to do, and we're going to be continuing to do it in 2024, we're reading through the New Testament together, all 260 chapters, and we're reading that one chapter a day, Monday through Friday. If you've been doing that along with me and many, many others in our church, this is the third time you have read this same story. Isn't that amazing? Third time in, in, in just this year. And we're reading Matthew, the, the last of the Gospels, so we've read this also in Matthew, in Mark, and in John. Now here's the thing. Each of these three Gospels reflect a little bit differently on the same event. Like if you especially go over to John, John like reflects differently on this, says some different things, adds some different content. And so I think that I want to pause for a moment before we kind of get to this scripture. I want to talk about the differences we see, especially in the gospels, because some would say, pastor, isn't that a problem? I mean, isn't, isn't 
that why some people don't believe the Bible is true. Because as they're reading through different accounts, especially in the Gospels, they're saying, wait a second, Jesus said this over here, but when I switch over here, it says something a little bit different. Or, or when, I, when I read the different things about the, the two thieves on the cross that were, you know, on either side of Jesus, it, it like talks a little differently about what happened with those, with those characters. You know, only, only one of the Gospels says that one of the thieves like actually, you know, turned their life to Christ. And isn't that a problem? Is, aren't the differences a reason why maybe we should like question, is this actually true? But here's what I want to convey to you and bring a little bit of hopefully helpful thought on this matter to you because it's important because we look to the Bible for the very content of our faith, the very promises of God. Is it reliable? And here's what I want to tell you is that the, the differences are not a problem. The differences are actually one of the proofs that the Bible is true and an accurate representation of the life of Jesus and his followers. Well, how is that the case? How, how is that? Well, let's pretend for a moment that what some people believe is that, let's pretend that, that it's accurate, that that a group of people after Jesus was dead and buried and like just dead, right? That a bunch of his followers got together who really liked him, who really liked what Jesus had to say. And they said, hey, we want people to follow him into the future. And so we're going to write these gospels in a way that would make it seem like Jesus was proclaiming himself to be God. And we're going to write in things to make it seem like he was actually performing these amazing miracles. We know he didn't really do that, but we're going we're gonna to write it in a way that would make it seem that way. And we're actually, let's put in something that would be this remarkable thing that, that we're going to tell people in these letters that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we know he stayed dead, but we're going to write that in anyway. Now, suppose that were to be the case, Okay. Are you willing to go there with me for a minute and like play along? If that were the case, and this group of people had gotten together to write some fiction about Jesus that, that somehow made its way all the way to us today. If they had written this fictionally, you know what they would have done? They would have gotten together. They would have ironed out any inconsistencies, ironed out all the differences to provide one consistent way of, pre of, prevent of presenting an event so that in the future it would only and could only be told one way with no differences. If it was fiction, that's how it would have been presented. Just a singular, boop, this is what happened, this is who was there, this is what was said, this, this is the result. There would have, it would have been confusing for them to have had different narratives if it was Fiction. So what do the differences point to? They point to two different realities. First, these were eyewitness accounts. Now, in, the, in, the, uh, in Matthew and John, they were actually the eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were both uh, some of the 12 disciples. They were there when these things were happening. And so... They, they wrote exactly what they saw and that they remember Jesus saying. 
Now, the other two Gospels, Mark and Luke, were written kind of like a journalist would, would write. They went to the eyewitnesses and got the reports. Mark and Luke were not those part of those 12. They, they may have been there for different parts. Uh, we're not exactly sure, but they had first-person eyewitness accounts written as journalists. And here's something amazing. When you go back and read through the Gospels, how many people's names, like real people's names, were woven into the stories? In fact, we, we like read at the beginning of this, this passage here that this all happened in someone's home. Like, and they gave the guy's name. Simon, the leper. Most probably, this is one of the guys Jesus had healed. I was like, we're throwing a party for Jesus, right? They actually drop in people's names. Now, think about that. If this was fiction, you would not drop in those kind of details because those people were all known when these letters came out. They were like, oh, yeah, Simon, the guy from Bethany? If they had any question about what, was, what happened, they could actually go to Simon the leper. I mean, they're dropping in all of these different names and accounts in specific places. You would not do that if you did not want people to go back and research. But these were eyewitness accounts. So guess what happens with eyewitness accounts? They're all a little bit different. If you go to a courtroom and they bring in several witnesses and say, what did you see on the night of you know, the dinner at Jesus, you know, Jesus' honor, you know, at Simon the leper's house. You go, whoa, man, well, this person was there and this person said this. And because of where they were seated and where they were looking and their observation, they're going to be a little different because they're eyewitnesses. Here's the second thing that the differences point to. And it's something that we learned earlier this year. Um, when uh, Professor Jen Thigpen came and talked to us, and she dropped this amazing statement on us that I think is registered with a lot of us very deeply. And this is, this is the statement. That the Bible was written for us. It was not written to us. That is a huge revelation that like, we just need to like, keep remembering. It was written for us, no doubt about it. It was not written to us meaning that these authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had a specific audience that they were writing to with particular questions, with particular needs. So they wrote choosing the details to put in or to leave out based on their audience and what was going to move the needle and be most helpful for their audiences. That is why when we are reading, we come across differences in some of what we read. I think what's amazing is in the handful of places where we see differences in the gospel, that they're not in contradiction with each other. Very rarely would someone say, wait a second, what's the question? What's going on here? Almost always the differences that we see are complementary and actually add to our knowledge and add to what we can learn about a particular thing because we're hearing from different eyewitness accounts. That's why we're reading the whole New Testament. That's why, we're re- that's why we read the whole thing so that we get the whole gospel and the whole story. And in this story right here that we just read, John and 
uh, Mark, both add in some other details, but John really goes into much more detail. He actually tells us who this woman was. You may not remember that from, when, from the summer when we read this in the book of John. John tells us that this was Mary. Remember Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus? Guess what? In the book of John, it actually says that this woman was Mary and that Martha and Lazarus were there at the party. Okay? So now we know who was doing the anointing of Jesus. The pouring out of this very expensive perfume was Mary, the one who had sat at Jesus' feet. Who Martha, while she was rushing around serving, you know, said, hey, rebuke that girl. Tell her to get up and get busy with me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. She gets it. She's right where she needs to be. That is the one who now is coming to Jesus as he's reclined at the table, which is in that culture. And I've been able to travel over there and actually got to spend a night in this Bedouin encampment. It's a beautiful thing, but you're kind of sitting around pillows and, and low tables and you're, you're kind of reclined there as you eat. And guess what she did? She comes and she pours this oil over Jesus. In Matthew, it says, his head, in John, it says, over his feet. They're different. Are they contradictory? No. She did both. One, one reflected on one part, one reflected on another. They're complementary. She anoints his head. She anoints his feet. John also tells us who it was who was throwing shade on Mary and why he was doing it. It wasn't just all the disciples. John tells us very specifically, this was Judas. Judas was the one who was throwing shade. He was the one who, Matthew says, was indignant. How dare she be wasteful like that? She should have put the money into my hands so that I could give it to the poor. Why did he do that? Why did Judas do that? John also tells us. Because Judas was a thief and often took monies that had been donated to the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, and he was a thief and was taking it. So when we read these different accounts of the very same event, we find this, this rounded out story. And what we discern is that there, is, there are two main characters here that Jesus then reflects on. Mary and Judas. And what Jesus points out is that there is a huge discrepancy between the two. And what I would like to tell you is that the differences between Mary and Judas came down to three things. It came down to their beliefs, which led to their choices, which led to very different outcomes. Their beliefs that led to their choices that led to two very different outcomes. And the reality that I think that should kind of worry, maybe scare us just a little bit, when we read this and we realize, like Judas and Mary were, man, 
What should scare us all just a little bit is that we all can end up being more like Judas than Mary in this story. And it all starts with what they believed and what we believe. But before I point out kind of the difference of what they believed, I want us to like remember for a moment how similar both of their experiences were. Very, very similar experiences. Both of them had experienced the redeeming work of Jesus in their own lives personally. Both of them had become his followers. They had both witnessed the miraculous power of Jesus over and over again in so many diverse ways. In fact, just in the weeks prior to this story happening at this supper where Mary pours out this extravagant, generous gift over Jesus, her brother had died and Jesus rose him from the dead, brought him back to life, called him forth from the grave. Mary had seen this. Judas had seen it as well. But Judas had witnessed even more. He, for nearly three years, had walked alongside Jesus, had literally learned at his feet, had seen more miracles than we even read about in Scripture because we're told at the end of one of the Gospels that, like, if everything were written about Jesus, it would fill, like, more books than the earth could even contain. Judas was hearing and learning and seeing all of these different things. And more than that, Judas had been one of the disciples who Jesus had empowered and sent out to go into the, remember the towns and villages, saying, hey, go and take this message of the good news. And guess what? While you're there, heal people in my name and cast out demons in my name too. Judas was one of those guys who went out and did the Jesus stuff. And when the disciples, including Judas, came back and reported to Jesus, said they came back rejoicing, like, oh my gosh, even the demons have to flee when we cast them out in your name, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's awesome. But don't clap too soon till you remember one of them was Judas. Doing all the Jesus stuff. Telling people about Jesus, casting out demons, probably operating prophetically, speaking about the gospel. He was doing all the Jesus stuff, but there was something that was missing. There was something that was broken. Even though Mary and Judas had so many similar experiences, there was one significant difference in what they believed. Mary believed Jesus would meet every one of her needs. Mary believed that Jesus would meet every one of her needs. Judas did not. Mary believed that in Christ, she had all that she needed for her life, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient. Judas did not believe that. 
even though Judas knew Jesus, the choices that he made to ridicule Mary's extravagant, radical, generous worship, to ridicule her, and then also just to, to be a thief and to regularly be stealing from the funds that were given so that the disciples and Jesus could be generous and pouring out to the poor. He did that because he believed truly deep down in his heart that Jesus was not enough and that Jesus would not meet all of his needs. So what did he do? He took what wasn't his. Trying to fill a void because he didn't trust Jesus to fill that void. So he stole, he was a thief. Friends, I wanna tell you, this is so fundamental. It is, I believe, at the core of so many of our issues surrounding our faith. Do we trust Jesus to be our sufficiency, our all in all, believing that he will meet all our needs according to his riches? Or do we not trust Jesus quite to that level? I want you to listen to how the apostle Paul addresses this like core issue of our faith. It's in Colossians 2, 8 through 10. He says this. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Listen, I want, I want you to just pause for a moment. So he's saying that these are like these elemental human philosophies, right? They come both from hum, humans, but it says that they also come from this place of kind of spiritual darkness, the spiritual powers of this world, not of heaven, not from God, but there is a, there is a kind of a demonic influence upon the way we just naturally think as humans. It kind of goes like this, take Take everything that you can get. Take it. Consume it. You deserve to be happy no matter what. So take whatever you can. Shape your own life to maximize your personal happiness and fulfillment. No matter what it costs other people or no matter what it even costs your own soul. Take. Shape your life to maximize your own happiness and fulfillment. I believe that would summarize what Paul is getting after. And check this out. All of that would almost kind of make sense. Isn't that how we're supposed to, to live? Isn't that, shouldn't we try to like maximize ourselves, live for my, be I want to be my best self and for me to be my best, I want to be happy. So, but check this out, it almost makes sense except for what Paul drops on us next. He says, don't let anyone capture you with that nonsense, that foolishness. Then he goes on and says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of, of God in a human body. 
and you are complete in him. I want to tell you that is so fundamental and foundational to our faith that we cannot find completeness in anything else. The world will tell you, go and take. Go and take what doesn't belong to you. I mean, wouldn't life be better if you just went and took another wife? Sorry, babe. Just an illustration. I mean, wouldn't life be better if you took another husband? Wouldn't it be better if you just like cashed in your family for a new one? I don't like those kids anyway. They bug me. They're always on my last nerve. Just take what was never designed for you to take. From your employer, from the government, whatever. I'm just going to be a taker. People even like, I want to take a different gender because I think that that would actually fulfill me at my place of deepest need and desire. And God says, that's, that's not who I created you to be. Just take it. That comes from this problem of people not realizing that in Christ is the fullness of God himself. And that it's Jesus, the one who came, the one who poured out his life for us, for all of humanity, that he is the only one who can complete you and me. We can only find our human completeness through Jesus. Anything else that we search after or try to take is going to be in vain. And Mary believed this to her core. I am completed in Christ. Just let that, those words just like settle on your spirit. If Mary were here, she would be declaring this about what she had come to understand about herself in relationship to Jesus. May those become my words and your words, the things that we declare about ourselves and our stories. I am complete in Christ. I am complete in him. Friends, you are complete. David, you are complete in him. Complete. Not lacking anything. Kirk, you are complete in Christ. In Jesus is all the fullness of God. And it's Jesus who fills me fully, completely, totally in every area of my life, my body, my mind, my spirit. Mary got this. Judas did not. And remember, it's our beliefs that lead to our choices. I love what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this very thing. This very, very thing in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he says this, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, meaning like in abundance, like pouring out his grace on you. 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, did he leave anything out there? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may, you may then abound in every good work. Meaning that because God has been abundant to you, you are now able to make choices to abundantly pour out blessings on others. This is how it's to work. That we understand, that we believe, we put our trust in the all-sufficient one who has given us all things that we need at all times, in every circumstance. And when we believe that, you know what's going to happen? Our choices will flow from it. Our choices will flow from it. And friends, the outcome of our lives is going to be so different. Think for a moment about the outcomes of Mary and of Judas. What did Jesus say about Mary? He said, everywhere that this gospel is preached, around the world, everywhere it's preached, you're going to be hearing about this woman and what she did today. (sighs) It's her legacy. It's a legacy of faith. It's a legacy of generosity. It is a legacy of trusting in Jesus for her completeness. And out of that faith, what did she do? She took her very best. What do I have that is of the very, very highest value? I'm going to pour that out to Jesus to bring glory to him, to honor him. What is the legacy of Judas? It's a little different. Just it literally, like in the next verses, we find that Judas runs out, finds the religious leaders who are all wanting to kill Jesus and said, hey, I'll sell him to you. I know you guys are having a hard time like pinning him down. I'll pin him down. What, what will you pay me? So for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus and all of his friends that he's just been doing life with for the past three years. For 30 pieces of silver, and you say, wow, it sounds like a lot of money. Actually, they tell us that those, the pieces of silver were not that big, that in today's dollars, that probably would be somewhere around a few hundred dollars. He sold out his friends. He sold out Jesus. So, oh, and then when he realizes the gravity of the mistake that he made, what did he do? He, he went and hung himself. Listen, it, it is the same all the way back to the garden of Eden. When God had given Adam and Eve everything for their enjoyment, that they would be complete, that they would be filled with life of every human experience. But he said, hey, but there's one thing that's going to steal that away from you. It'll actually kill you. Don't eat from this one tree. So what does the serpent do? The serpent comes and lies saying, this will not kill you. You're actually missing out because you are not seeing things the way God sees them. You right now don't understand the difference between good and evil. Do you want that? Take and eat. So they took the one thing that Jesus said would ruin everything. They took it. That same spirit of Judas was right there in the very first moments of human history where that 
fullness and completeness of life that Adam and Eve experienced, unlike any of us ever will, until we get to heaven. And it was stolen away because of a lie. This won't kill you. Listen, Mary's legacy is one of life, generosity, and faith. Judas's is a legacy of pure evil, deceit, betrayal, and ultimately what? Death. What do we believe? Is God your all-sufficient one? Is, is Jesus the one that you turn to over and over again and say, Jesus, I need you? I, I invite you into this area of my life that feels broken, that feels out of sorts. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it is related to, to gender and trying to figure out, God, who am I? Would you invite Jesus into those very deepest places of your life and your story? And say, Jesus, I need you here. I trust that you are the all-sufficient, all-complete one, that in you is the fullness of God, and that you will fill me with everything that I need. Everything that I need, everything you complete me. I pray that that will be all of our stories. I want to finish with just one thing that Jesus said in reflection of, of Mary's gift. He said, she has done a beautiful thing. See, here's the question that I have for each of us. If we believe that Jesus is the only one who brings fulfillment and completeness in our lives and our stories, here's what I would ask. What beautiful thing might you be prompted to do based on your faith? See, Mary had something that was unique to her. Sister didn't have it, her brother didn't have it, she had it. it some scholars even believe that this was like a family heirloom, like generational wealth being passed down and that Mary, it was Mary's. And she took it and she said, Jesus, I want to use what I have to pour out blessing to you. And Jesus said, oh, that is a beautiful thing. So the question I want to leave all of us with is what beautiful thing could God be calling you and I to do Maybe even this Christmas season that we're stepping into. Some radical act of like generosity. Some radical, and we're not going to do like a, a special offering here, by the way. That's between you and Jesus. But what might he prompt you to do that would be like Jesus calling around the angels? Did you see what Ken's doing right here? He's doing a beautiful thing. You all need to like pay attention and see what he's doing. What might God spur in my heart and yours for how we would choose to live in ways that Jesus says, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness. Thank you that it is reliable. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn of 
all your grace and all your truth and everything that we need for salvation. Thank you, Lord, that it shows us how we can be complete in you. And it's not by journeying out to try to find ourselves. It's by turning to you and saying, Jesus, you be the one to fulfill and complete me. If there's anybody here today that goes, I am just not complete in my life. I need that level of fulfillment and completeness that Mary had. So secure in who she was because she was so secure in who Jesus was in her story. And if you lack that today, here's the invitation. You are loved by God. He knows you intimately and deeply, the best parts of you and the most broken parts of you. And he says, bring it all. I want to be the one to make you whole and to complete every part of your life. And this life that I'm offering you is not just for here on earth, it's forever. Come to me. Find life in me, even life eternal. And if that's you and saying, I need, I desperately long for that kind of a life to be found in Christ, then make the great exchange. Bring everything of who you are and say, Jesus, I give everything of my life to you. Come into me, Lord. Come into my life. Heal me, save. And if that's anybody here this morning, man, I would love to just agree with you saying yes. If that's you, just raise your hand and say, yes, that's me. I need that completeness in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Look, look up at me, raise your hand. Yeah, you guys, yes. Complete in Jesus. And you don't have to wait like five years from now when you get it all figured out. Right now, he is completing and making you whole in every area, body, mind, and spirit. Yes. Yeah. I see I see you over there. Yeah. Absolutely. Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you. You came to make us whole. Broken people made whole by you. Ah, we love you. We love you. And now, Lord, may we live in that reality. God, may we now go out from here making choices in alignment with our beliefs and live beautiful lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Hey, friends, can I just tell you, wherever you find yourself this Thursday, be blessed. I am thankful for you. Be thankful for Jesus express your love and your thanks in many different ways. I can invite our ministry team to come up. If you need prayer for anything before you leave, if there's any area that feels incomplete, don't leave here. Don't leave without coming and receiving prayer from some trusted friend. We got our prayer team coming down. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving week. You are loved.